0: I think uh, this Sunday in particular is a very uh, pivotal time as we're thinking about how to navigate the events of our nation and as a country together as a church. And I think that this message that we're going to be looking at this morning is very much a reminder of what our identity as a church is. The call that we have as believers to live in unity with one another, that though there might be uh, disagreements and differing opinions about what's happening, that we are reminded time and time again in Scripture that the most important goal that we have as a church in this is to maintain the unity of the church. And this is very much part of our gospel witness. This is very much part of the, the spiritual warfare that we are waging is to remain united as a church. And so I think this message is very timely. It's uh, something that speaks very much to what's happening now. And I think this is very much part of the Lord's sovereignty, uh, even in arranging the the events of these last couple weeks. The reason I say that it's so sovereign is uh, I chose this message for a very different reason, this passage uh, for a different topic. Earlier this year, the pastors were getting together and talking about, since this is the year of evangelism, how can we bring a series together which will help our body think about how the gospel has implications for life? And we talked about a number of different um, issues. And as you know, we had to scrap that whole series because we've had a number of different things happen in our uh, country the last couple of months. Uh, But in many ways, I think the, the sermons we have had very much are related to what the series was going to be about. Right? What are the gospel implications for life today? And as you've heard from Pastor Kempis and the other pastors, we've talked about many of these gospel implications for living. Right? What does Christianity, what does the Bible say about COVID-19 and our response as Christians to it? What does the Bible, what does the gospel say to areas of racial injustice and racism? What does the Bible say to real life matters? And so in many ways, I think we have had the series that we were thinking we were going to have. And as we were talking about this several months ago, the the sermon that I was was given or thinking about was the gospel's implications for this next generation. If you're thinking anywhere from 22 and below, what does the gospel say? How does the gospel speak into the lives of this next generation? And what are some of the issues that this next generation is facing? And so as I was thinking about this the last couple of months, the topic that kept on coming back and back to my mind was the gospel's implications for our view of the church, right? How does this next generation, how do younger people understand their role and their identity as the church? That when you are saved in the gospel, you're not saved just individually, but as we've heard for multiple weeks already, we are saved into the church, which is the body of Christ. And I think, unfortunately, when you're talking to many young people, they fail to really understand the depth of that identity as the church. And we can do this in many different cases. There's many times where we know that we identify ourselves a certain way, but we don't really think about what that means. And for me, uh, that happened with my last name, Master Leonardo. As many of you know, I I took that last name from my stepfather many years ago. And, you know, as a younger kid, I didn't really think much about it. Right, It was somewhat humorous that most people thought that because of that name, Masha Leonardo, they, they thought I was Japanese. Uh, a lot of people growing up just got a kick out of the fact that an Asian kid had an Italian last name. And for me, it didn't really mean much. It was a sort of a, a running joke among my friends. Uh, But as I learn more about our family's history, I realize that that name, Master Leonardo, actually has a very deep meaning and significance to our family's identity. Because roughly translated, at some point in Italian history, it really has the idea or meaning of the master of the lions— which means that at some point in the family's history, uh, they were either lion tamers or some kind of uh, rulers or people who had owned lions or had some kind of power of a lion. There was very much a deep symbolism and and deep significance for what our family's background was. And so how ironic was that for us today, I just kind of walked around thinking it was funny that Master Lenaro had 13 letters and most teachers couldn't say it. And so what the reality was for a lot of people, you know, we would hear that, oh yeah, we are Masha Leonardos, but we didn't really understand how meaningful it was and the the depth of what the identity represented. And I think in a lot of cases, uh, believers, especially the younger generation, can do that same thing with our identity as the church. We understand, at least on a theoretical level, that as Christians, we are saved into the church. Uh, People can recite maybe verses that it comes from, even the passage that uh, Pastor Tim read from and that I'll be reading from. Many believers understand that, but we often don't understand the depth of what our identity as a church means for us. We don't understand how amazing, how deep, and how many implications it has for how we treat one another. Because our identity as a church indeed does matter. When you recognize that we are part of the church, it shapes how we treat everyone, how we treat other people here in our body, how we treat those outside of our midst. It has implications for every part of our lives. I recognize that part of what I'm going to be talking about this morning are themes that we've heard several times throughout the last couple months, but especially given what's happening right now in our country, and especially given where our younger people are at, the next generation is, I think that this is a message that we really need to hear. Our author, David Wells, says this, "What someone thinks about the church, tells us exactly what that person is thinking about Christianity. In other words, what a person thinks about the church, their identity as a church, tells us what they think about other people, about sinners and saints. It tells us what they think about God. It tells us what they think our faith is all about. And that is why, especially for our younger people today, as well as for our entire church, we must make sure we understand what is our identity. That if we really are part of the church, what have we become? And how do, you, how do we treat one another in light of that? And so as we're looking at our passage, Ephesians chapter 2, verse 19 to verse 22, we're going to see so many different ways of, now that we are part of the church, how now should we live? And I'll tell you right now, brothers and sisters, it is no light or small matter. It changes everything about how we live. And so we're going to see these three identities that are true of you as a believer, if you're part of the church. So I'm going to read, starting from verse 19, hear what we are as the church now. Paul says, So then, you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone, in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord, In him you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. This is God's word. Let's pray together. Well, Father, as always, I I just recognize how flawed I am as a human vessel, how flawed how flawed we are as people. And I just pray that this morning you would speak your truth into our hearts. That you would help us to know how to live as believers in a way that honors you and that loves one another. We thank you and pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. So I just want to give you a little bit of background about this section of Scripture. You probably remember Pastor Kemp mentioning some of this, and I hope that this is indeed a reminder to you. When you're looking at chapter 2 of Ephesians, what Paul is doing is showing us how the gospel transforms our relationships with each other. He starts off in showing how there's really these two different levels of reconciliation because of the cross. That from verse 1 to verse 10, you're seeing this level of vertical reconciliation. That God has redeemed us to himself. And this is, of course, such a wonderful and and well-known part of scripture. He reminds us of our deadness and our sins, that there's nothing good in us, that we were alienated from God and from his people. We were far off from him. And that as sinners, we were not children of God, but we were actually children of wrath. That God's just wrath reigns on us, that we were doomed to destruction and judgment. And yet in God's great mercy and love, we have been reconciled through his blood on the cross. That God extends his grace and mercy to us. That because of the death of Jesus Christ and because of his resurrection and ascension, we can now have a relationship with God. We can have eternal life. And this is nothing that has to do with our works. It is because of God's grace. And we because of his grace, we are now reconciled to God as you're turning to the second half of this wonderful chapter from verse 11 to verse 17, you see how this vertical reconciliation leads to this horizontal reconciliation. That because we've been reconciled to God, we are now joined to one another. And you probably remember, as you've heard from this passage before, that in that day, because of the Mosaic law, because that was the standard of our relationship to God, there was this separation between Jews and the rest of the world. That the Jews held this aura of moral superiority because they had the Mosaic law. And that in order for us to have a connection to God, you had to follow all the rituals of circumcision and Sabbath keeping and following all of these laws about eating foods and rituals of festivals and holidays. And that was how people would have a connection to Yahweh. But because of that, there was this break, there, there was this gap and separation between the Jews and the Gentiles the wonderful truth of Ephesians 2, what Paul is bringing up here, is that in Christ, we no longer are bound to the old ways of the law. And that is no longer how we have a connection to God. And that Jesus Christ is now the new standard for how we have a connection to him. And therefore, because the Mosaic law is no longer our standard, there is no longer reason for distance between Jew and Gentile. There is now a new path in which everyone is one. And as Pastor Tim read this morning, we now have peace. That there is no longer hostility. There is no longer anger and infighting. There is peace between Jew and Gentile. All of us can now be one and harmonize with one another. And what I love about this passage that I just read from verse 19 to verse 22 is Paul is summarizing this whole chapter. And what he's trying to do is showing us what is your identity now as God's people? Now that you have been reconciled, now that there is no longer two different groups, now that you are one, how do you identify yourself as the body of Christ? How do you see yourself as the church? And as we're going to see, there's going to be really three different identities that are true. But I think we need to realize how important this section really is. That we can so often lose these identities, even after we call ourselves Christians. I I want you guys to think about a certain passage of Scripture, Galatians 2. And remember how Paul is explaining what happened with Peter, a fellow apostle, and how they were together uh, eating food with the Gentiles, because though they were Jews, they recognized that they were now one. They recognized that they were fellow brothers in Christ. And yet, when you have other Jews, the legalistic party, coming in, Peter, who was an apostle of Christ, walked away from the, the Jewish brothers. He didn't want to be associated with them out of fear, because he knew that certain groups, certain other people would judge him for that, and he would be condemned. And so as you see in Galatians 2, Paul actually had to condemn and rebuke his brother saying, what are you doing? Don't you understand what we have in Christ? Don't you understand that we are now reconciled together? And think about this, right? If an inspired apostle of God who wrote parts of the Bible could struggle with understanding his identity in the church, if Peter could struggle with understanding how he should view and treat other believers, how much more is that applicable to us? We understand that we're part of the church. We can say that we are supposed to be unified, but what does that really mean for how we live? And what are ways that we don't do that, especially thinking about this next generation? And so in this passage, we're going to really see three different ways that this applies. First, in verse 19, you see how God in the gospel, by bringing us in the church, has brought us together into a new country. We are now citizens of his kingdom. And then notice how here in verse 9, he's talking about what our natural state was. He says that we were initially strangers and aliens. All right, these are two different social groups in, in the Roman uh, kingdom. Uh, strangers would have been people who were so far off. They were not familiar with the land of Rome. They would have been speaking a different language. They were people who were kind of just transient, passing through for a period of time. And they were kind of the lowest of the low. They had totally different customs, and therefore they were treated in many ways with disrespect and disgust. You have the second group that Paul references, which is aliens. And these are people who were living in the land for a longer period of time, but this was not their true home. And they did not have the same level of legal privileges as citizens. And Paul, by bringing up these two different groups, is saying, that was you before you knew Christ. That you were like second-class people in the midst of this country. You were looked down upon by the citizens, which were the Jews you were separated from. It, it makes me think of a, a time when I was in the, the state of Ohio, which, you know, compared to California, might as well be a different kind of country. I remember going there, uh, you know, I went to school in Pittsburgh, and so we would have this uh, yearly conference that we would go to. It was a Christian conference in Ohio, and part of the drive from Pittsburgh is you would have to go through much of the rural countryside, And the thing that's important to know about this whole trip was that it was a bunch of Asian people in the car, right? So there's four or five of us that were Asian. And I distinctly remember one part of the journey, uh, stopping for lunch. And we went to Panera because we figured, you know, that's pretty safe food overall. And I distinctly remember that experience of walking in, right? The whole Panera was very full. There was lots of lively conversations happening. Uh, Basically, everyone in in the Panera was white. And I remember when I opened the doors for a split second, you could see all the conversations stop and everyone look at us for just a split moment. And then they returned back to their conversations and talked in a much quieter tone. And I remember during that trips or those trips of going to Ohio as if you're stopping at a gas station, people would come up to us and they were very polite. They, they actually meant this in a very cordial way, but they would say stuff like, you're not from around here, are you? Right? There was very much this sense of otherness and separation. And I bring that up not to say that Ohio is a bad place. There's wonderful people. But this is the sense that Paul was trying to get at. That you were seen as other than us. You were seen as second-class citizens. You were strangers. That's how Jews treated you as Gentiles. And as you were hearing Pastor Tim read from verse 12 and verse 13, you were separated and alienated from God's people. You were outside of God's covenants. You were indeed strangers and aliens. And yet in the gospel, your national status has now changed. You are now considered citizens of God's kingdom. You are fellow citizens with the saints. And that term citizen is such a wonderful idea. Right? In that day to be a citizen of Romans is saying, you are one of Caesar's people. You had full acceptance in the community of God. You had all the the legal privileges that came with that identity. You had protection from Caesar wherever you went. And that's why you see in Acts 16 that when Paul and Silas were in prison and they were beaten secretly and hiddenly, that when they were trying to be released by the, the authorities, Paul said, how can you beat a Roman citizen and just try to let him off? And they were fearful And the reason Paul could say that, the reason that the leaders were fearful was because Paul's uh, uh, identity as a citizen meant he had protection, right? There was a depth and a meaning to that. And what Paul is saying in our case is that we are now fellow citizens with the saints. In other words, you are now part of God's kingdom. You are now fellow citizens with God's people, who was Israel and the Jews. All of the privileges that they had in their identity now belong to you. That your citizenship is now not of this earth, but is indeed of heaven. That that is our home, as we've heard from even Revelation 4 last week. And it's as you hear in Philippians 3.20, but our citizenship is in heaven and from it we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. The way that we identify ourselves is understanding that we now have all of the blessings and privileges of the kingdom of God. Everything that we see in the New Testament of our salvation realities is now true of us. And the new kingdom system that we submit to is ultimately the word of God. And this new reality, this identity that we have as citizen kingdom, as kingdom citizens, means that we process what happens today in a totally different grid. There is the realm of earth and there is the realm of heaven. And we as heaven citizens must live this life on earth in light of our true identity. We must remind ourselves as Christians, as a church, that our true home, our true citizenship is not of this world, that this is no longer our home. And that the way that we relate to people, the way that we relate to everything going on in this life is in light of that fact. This is not our home. This is not where we belong. And the way that we must live must represent the kingdom well. Let me give you a couple examples of what this can look like. Right? Remembering that this is not our home means that even when life is difficult, even when things are daunting, even when you're looking at what's happening around our state and nation right now, and everything seems like it's in disarray, even when that's the case, we can still walk in life with joy, with contentment, and with humility. Because though these are indeed strange times, though these are indeed hard times, this is not where we truly reside. We are just passing through temporarily. We are not here to make our permanent address or permanent home here. And therefore, whatever happens is not our primary concern. Because we know where we are going, which is the kingdom of heaven. This also means that when we do see what's happening here, it's not saying that we must disregard the events of of this world. We've had several sermons the last couple months about how much we need to engage. But it means that we process life here as foreigners. Foreigners. There's a country I discovered this week when I was Googling. It's a country by South Africa called Lesotho. It's only about a hundred miles wide. It's a very tiny country. And one of the latest news that I discovered online was that the, the prime minister resigned recently. Right, that was the, the, the biggest update that came out in the news market uh, because this country is so small. Now, let me ask you guys a question. How many of you guys lost sleep over that fact? Right? How many of you in the last couple days woke up in the middle of the night thinking, but what about Lesotho? What are we going to do about Lesotho? How are we going to survive now that the prime minister has resigned? What on earth are we going to do? I don't think any of you guys did that. And I'm not saying that that country is insignificant. Obviously, we should be praying for all the nation, all the world. But because you live here, what's happening on the other side of the world isn't really your primary concern. It's not something that, that keeps you up at night. And in the same way, we have to remember that though we are indeed living here on earth, where we truly reside, where our priorities are as citizens of the kingdom, is in heaven. Our primary concern is what's happening up there and how we are able to honor God while we are staying here. We process life not as earthly citizens, but as heavenly citizens. So I want to ask you guys kind of a a heart-seeking question, right? A lot is happening around our country. A lot is happening around the world right now. A lot is happening here in our state. As you process what's happening, given everything with masks and the virus, are you thinking more as a citizen of America or as a citizen of the kingdom of God? Because I think what you see in the New Testament is if we really are being kingdom citizens, we have to think about what's happening in a totally different light and with different purposes. Listen to 1 Corinthians nine, twelve. Paul says this, Nevertheless, we have not made use of this right, but we endure anything rather than put an obstacle in the way of the gospel of Christ. And we don't have time to read that whole section, but basically what Paul is saying is, is, you know, because I am a, I'm a messenger of the gospel, because that is my focus, I'm going to let go of any right I have to make sure that this gospel message is preached. Right? Yes, I am an apostle. Yes, I am a Jew. Yes, I have all of these privileges and statuses I can cling on to and use. But you know what? I'll drop them all if it means I can proclaim the gospel. That's why he says to the Jew, I became a Jew. To the Gentile, I became a Gentile. He's saying, I don't care about any of these rights. I will give it all up in order to let the gospel go forth. And so again, think about how you've been responding to the events of our state, right? You see a lot of bickering, a lot of turmoil, as Tim was mentioning earlier. And and think about this. On one level, you can process it saying, these are my American rights. How dare you take away my rights? And I'm not going to get into the whole conversation of whether wearing a mask is constitutional or not. That's not the issue, right? That is one of our natural tendencies. But do you have that tendency or think about it this way? If wearing a mask will remove one more stumbling block from this world, how can I use this situation to proclaim the gospel? Are you thinking about what's going on right now as I am a citizen of this country and these are my rights? Or are you thinking about it through the lens of how can I use these situations, these events around our country and in our state right now to glorify God, to proclaim the gospel? Because again, you can have different opinions about what's legal and what's not. But I think what you see in 1 Corinthians and what our identity as citizens is, is that what we're more focused on is not how we're getting our rights. It's about how we are proclaiming the gospel. As, As kingdom citizens, the question becomes, how can I help people understand this new citizenship? And you know what? if mask or no mask, or whatever other issues you want to get into, if that's going to be a hindrance to that message, I will drop it. Because it's not my rights that's important. It's not our rights as people. The goal is always thinking outward. How can we glorify God? How can we make much of the gospel? And this is why we must understand that our identity as a church is one as kingdom citizens. That we are no longer primarily residents of this world or even this country, our new country. Where we reside is that of the heavenly world. And therefore, life becomes a tale of two kingdoms. Which kingdom is our primary allegiance to? And how are we processing life? What grid are we thinking through? And as Christians, as a church, it must be as citizens of God's kingdom. There's a second identity that Paul brings up here. And you see this in verse 19 and verse 20. He says that we are now part of a new family. And the ironic thing is this is something that I actually preached on just a a couple months ago. It's something that you've heard multiple times from many of our pastors here. But I think it's worth uh, reminding ourselves of because this is such a key identity as a church. Here's the amazing thought that Paul is trying to say. Is that as Christians, we are now the family of God. That though we were strangers, though we were aliens, though we were initially so far off from God, we are now his family. You see in Ephesians 1.5, he predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ. That God has adopted us as sons and daughters. He's brought us into his family. As you see in Romans 8.15, that we get to call God Abba, Father, which shows the intimacy of our relationship as family. That we can approach God, not as distant people, but as his sons and daughters. And this idea of family is significant, especially for this first century, right? To be part of a person's family, especially a prominent, powerful individual, meant that you had a sense of refuge and protection. That no one can hurt you because you have your father's protection and his power. And the sense of being part of his family, being his sons and daughters, grants us our identity and our sense of belonging, we know he's going to take care of us. We know that he's going to provide for us because he is indeed our heavenly father. And the, the point that Paul is trying to say in our passage here, and really from verse 11 all the way through here, is that now that you are in Christ, of course, you are now family with God, but you are also now family with each other. Remember, as I've said before, this was something that stumbled so many Jews back in that day. The Jews and Gentiles lived in totally different ways. Their cultures were different. The way that they related, the, what, what they enjoyed, the way that they thought about the world there, their religions was totally separate. And therefore they hated each other. The Jews especially hated the Gentiles for being unclean and dirty. So much so that a Samaritan, if, if a Gentile and Jew had a child together, they were seen as disgusting. Right? They would say phrases like, you devil because there must be no intermingling between the two groups. And then here again, what Tim read for us. This is Ephesians 2, verse 14 to 16. He that is Christ, he himself is our peace, who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances that he might create in himself one new man in place of the two, so making peace. That is that there is now peace between Jew and Gentile. There is no more separation. And therefore, as we hear in verse 19, you are now the family of God. You're not even just supposed to kind of get along buddy-buddy. You're supposed to treat each other like family. And again, like I've mentioned before, think about how you view and treat your own family members. Fathers, think about how you treat your sons. Mothers, think about how you treat your daughters. Siblings, try to think of, think about how you, you treat one another, how you treat your family. There's a sense of love, right? An unconditional love where you put up with the issues. You put up with the flaws that we all have. You're willing to love each other unconditionally because you are family. And again, when I'm thinking about our church, especially looking at this next generation, which I oversee in many ways, we don't really treat each other like family. What often happens in the church is that many Christians don't love the church. They like their friends. And what I mean by that is you have people where obviously you're going to treat certain individuals well. You're going to get buddy-buddy with certain people. You're going to love on them and put up with their issues. But really it's because on a deep, deep level, you naturally like them. You naturally get along with them. And for the people that you don't get along with, for those that maybe uh, look differently than you, act differently, have different cultural preferences, you don't really associate with them. You know, I've been at this church a little bit over two years now. It's been a joy to be part of our church family here. But as I interact with so many families and and hear about how they think about things, there are so many skewed mentalities. I mean, I have seen, you know, families where basically if a child is having some kind of beef with another student in the church— they're okay if they just totally never interact. And there's a number of people where they say, you know what, if you don't get along with them, if, they, if, if they're disagreeable, just hang out with other people. It's okay. You don't have to talk to them. Or I hear some people where they say, you know what, like my son or daughter just doesn't really get along naturally. The personalities are different. Maybe some of them, maybe some of the kids seem boring or they're, they're not as cool as maybe my son or daughter. And so, you know what, if you don't really click with this church group, it's okay. Uh, you can find other friends. You can, you can find friends in school and your sports clubs and things like that. and the most extreme case, what happens is you have families where they're seeing that their kids maybe just aren't enjoying every part of the church program. And they say, you know what? We're going to go find another church. In all of these different cases, we do treat the church like a building. We treat it as a series of programs where we can choose where we want to connect to. But what we must remember, and here's the thing, I'm not trying to call any specific individuals. This is something I've seen as a pattern over these last two years. So please know I'm not calling anyone out out specifically. These are patterns I see. And what we must remember in light of what Paul is saying here is that we must treat the church like our family. We must treat the people, the fellow students as brothers and sisters. That's not just a term that we throw around. Right? And I think about this for, for you as family, as parents. If you have, let's say, two kids, and I know a lot of you guys have multiple kids. Let's say that you see you know, your son not getting along with your, your daughter, right? Two siblings aren't getting along. They're kind of fighting. Would you say, you know what? Just ignore each other. It's fine. You have other siblings. You have other brothers. Hang out with them. Would you do that? And I think you understand that the answer would be No. Right? Imagine again, if you have two children and one of them saying, you know what? My brother, he's just the most boring guy ever. We have nothing in common. I don't click with them. Would you tell your kids? I agree. You know what? Go hang out with your other siblings. Don't worry about it. There's other people there for you. We wouldn't do that because you understand as parents, that especially if you're a family, you have to love your brothers and sisters. You have to get along. You have to learn to work through each other's flaws, Right? And yet, when it comes to the church family, which God has brought us into, we say, it doesn't matter. Hang out with the people you like to hang out with. Ignore the people you don't like or you have beasts, but it's okay. And that is not at all what it means to be the family of God, right? If we are indeed the family, we must have this love with each other. If Jesus told us to love our enemies, how much more should we love our family, right? We must care for one another. We have to see each other as the family of God. And so few of us actually do. Again, we like our friends and don't love the church. And what I love about Paul's section here is he's trying to show us why indeed we must see each other as a family of God. He's showing us the significance of this in verse 19 and verse 20 because he's showing us here in verse 20 how we became the household of God. Right? Read with me. Verse 20 says, We are built on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets. Are you saying that you have these two groups? You have the apostles who are the witnesses of the resurrected Lord. These were the church leaders who would write scripture and doctrine and lead the beginnings of a church. And you have prophets who are these New Testament leaders who would teach these infant churches in many places where God's scripture was not laid out, in some cases with revelation. And you have these two different groups, which Paul says, this is the church's foundation, right? You are built on these two groups of people. And beyond that, you have a foundation, which is the foundation of the foundation, Jesus Christ. He says, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone. And the the imagery here is really saying that Jesus Christ is the very first block of the building. That when you're building any structure in that day, there had to be the initial stone, the foundation, which would lay the structure and the paths of the rest of the building. And Paul is saying that Jesus Christ is that cornerstone. And when he's saying it, this is a very deep word. The, the, the people reading would have been drawn back to Isaiah twenty eight sixteen, And there uh, God says, behold, I am the one who has laid as a foundation in Zion, a stone, a tested stone, a precious cornerstone of a sure foundation. And what's happening in this prophecy or God declaring for the future is that as Israel was sliding more and more into disobedience, as they were worshiping other gods, God knew that in his justice, he was going to punish them. that they would be in exile, they would be cast away from their land. And yet God knew that he would continue to have his faithful people. He say, I am going to bring a cornerstone, a foundation for my people that will not be cast away. And we know now that that foundation is indeed the God, man, Jesus Christ. And that Jesus is the foundation. He's the cornerstone which makes the church possible, which makes our relationship with God possible. And therefore, he is the cornerstone which makes the family of God possible. The reason we love each other, the reason we treat one another as citizens, and especially as a family of God, is because we are on the foundation of Jesus Christ. That again, through his blood on the cross, through his ascension and resurrection, there is no longer the Old Testament law which separates us. That we are now connected with God. We are one with him and therefore one another as family. And so therefore for us, if we want to understand our identity as a church, we must understand it truly as the family of God. But in order to understand that, recognize it comes because we are rooted in Christ. Why is it that people who have nothing in common can love one another? Why is it that people who look completely different have completely different skin tones can treat one another as family? It's because we are rooted in Christ. That we as a church, we are need a family. We are citizens of a new nation. But thirdly, and finally, as we go into verse twenty-one and and verse twenty-two, we see how we as a church are also a new temple. And let me read this passage one more time. Verse 21. In whom, referring to Jesus Christ, in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. This notion of a temple is a wonderful imagery. Remember that the temple in the Old Testament was the, the dwelling place of God. It was God's presence with his people. The idea of a temple is a place where heaven and earth met together. That you see God and sinners now meeting with one another. And you see this idea of God's dwelling throughout the Bible, right? And very much in the Garden of Eden, God's presence was with Adam and He very much there. And then even after sin, even after they had to separate, God still remained with his people through a number of different means. You see how after the exile, God would dwell with his people through the tabernacle. It was a temporary dwelling, but Yahweh showed his presence with Israel through the tabernacle. And eventually, as the the nation of Israel began to settle down through Solomon, God established the temple, which was the very throne room and presence of God on earth. Then as people would come to the city of Jerusalem, they understood that God was with them there. The problem, though, is if you were a Gentile, this did not fully apply, right? Even as Jews and as people, there was so much separation still, If you were a non-Jew, if you were a Gentile, you could only approach up to what was called the court of the Gentiles, which was the outer court of the temple. Even if you were a Jewish woman, you can only go into the court of the, the women, As you go into the temple proper, as you go further into the holy place and the holy of holies, you could only be a priest that would enter. And there, for the holy of holies, one individual once a year. And what you're seeing in this whole process of the Old Testament is that, yes, God could be with his people. Yes, we as sinners could have a relationship with God. And yet it was not an intimate one, especially if you were a Gentile. Then, of course, turn back to Ephesians 2. What is Paul saying about us now? He's saying that you as Christians, you as believers, you are now the temple of God. You see these two parallel phrases. Verse 21, you are growing into the temple of the Lord. Verse 22, you are the dwelling place of God. And Paul is saying, this is amazing, amazing news. You are now the dwelling of God. You no longer have to go to a physical location. You are no longer separated by courts and by walls and by curtains. You as believers are now the very dwelling place of God, even Gentiles. That you can now know God in the most intimate way possible because of Jesus Christ, because you are now the temple. And there's a couple implications for what this means. If you look at different parts of the New Testament, you see that we as a temple means that we must be people of holiness, that the church must be a holy, holy place. Going back to 1 Corinthians 6.19, Or do you not know that your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God? You are not your own, for you were bought with a price, so glorify God in your body. Right, that now that we are indeed the dwelling place, the temple of God, we must be pure and holy as the temple had to be holy. We must make sure that we are seeking righteousness and discipleship in any way we can because we must keep ourselves pure. But I think a second mark of a temple, and this is really Paul's emphasis here, is showing us that now as the church, you have the most intimate type of relationship with God possible now that you are the dwelling place of God, right? That God has reconciled us through the cross and therefore we are now with him, one with him. As you see in verse 18, through him we both have access in one spirit to the Father, right? This is where redemptive the history is going. This is where the storyline of the gospel is leading us to as we continue on to the ends of time, that we are getting to the day where we are closer and closer to God. And right now we are the temple But here, what you see in Revelation 21, this is the end story. This is the end game of history. John writes this, I saw no temple in the city, for its temple is the Lord God, the Almighty, and the Lamb. In other words, a day is coming where we will no longer need any temples because God will be physically with us. And right now, when Paul says that we are the temple, we see ourselves on this trajectory, this storyline where we are getting closer and closer to God's presence. And so the amazing truth of us being the temple of God, the church being the temple of God, is that we now delight in God's presence. We can delight in our intimacy with the Lord, and we can love him, and we can know him in a way that was not possible before. However, the problem is for many people in the church, especially much of our younger generation, our concept of the gospel, our concept of faith is not one of delighting in knowing God. That that's so much of this next generation, so much of parenting today is more focused on religious ritual and doing what's right. And I'm not saying that those things aren't needed. They are. But so oftentimes it misses what we really need as Christians, what the gospel is really bringing us to. And I've had a lot of conversations with our younger individuals in the church. And many times what will happen is I'd be meeting with a student because they did something foolish that they weren't supposed to do. And we would be talking about it, all right? Just trying to say, okay, what happened and why did you do it? And I remember in a lot of these conversations, the the guys will tell me, you know, how they erred, what they did wrong, why it was a sin, and the the multiple ways of, you know, lying, of disobeying parents, of whatever it might be, a bunch of different reasons— you know, I'd ask them to list, you know, what are some of the, the things that got them there in the first place, trying to understand, you know, wh- how do you even put yourself in foolish situations and how do you avoid that? What often happens is I'll get to the end of the conversation of, of them trying to say what they did wrong and how they're going to avoid it, and ask a very simple question. Given everything you've said, do you love God? And in every conversation I've had in those cases, the answer's been, No. In other words, when they really think about what they're doing, when they're thinking about this Christian life they're living or this religious life, yes, they're wanting to do the right thing. Yes, they understand that they've offended God in many ways. But deep down inside, there's not a true genuine joy in the Lord. There's not this loving relationship knowing that they have a connection with God. There's not any desire to really be with him It's all ultimately religious duty. And I think this is where we as a church can so often miss the mark of what we are trying to train kids in doing, right? We're so good in giving them all the moral instructions. We're so good in giving them what they should do. And yet we so often fail to help them see, do you really love God? Is that what drives everything? To know his presence and to delight in him. And I love what John Piper says about this matter. He says, knowledge about him will not do. Work for him will not do. We must have personal, vital fellowship with him. Otherwise, Christianity becomes a joyless burden. The danger with so, which so much people face in the church is that we don't understand what we are here to do. We, we don't understand what we are as the church. We miss the profound reality that we are here to delight in God's presence. And the whole reason why we've been created is to enjoy him, is to know him. And that now that we as a church, now that we've been saved in Christ, we are now the temple in which God dwells. That we now have this new relationship with God, this intimacy, this love and affection. And that is what we celebrate as the church. This is a profound, profound reality. In fact, all of these realities are profound. Again, why are we the church? What does it mean that we are the church? Why is this a joyous fact? Paul is trying to show us in this passage what our identity is as believers. The reason we're called citizens is because we are now members of a new country. The way that we live on this earth is not in light of, of being Americans or being immigrants here. But we understand that we are citizens of God's kingdom, and we must live in light of that fact. We understand that as Christians, we are now brought into a new family. That the way that we treat other people who maybe we don't naturally like is different because we are brothers and sisters. That is not a byword. That's not just a saying. It is deeply, deeply true. And thirdly, as you see that we are now the temple of God. That we in the church have this intimate, close relationship with him. That we delight in his presence, which is the end goal of all of history. And we have to make sure that we as Christians, that that is something, that is is what we delight in. Again, summarizing this whole passage, what you see is that though we were far off, we have now been brought close and near to God. How wonderful is that fact? And what I love about the, the letter to the Ephesians is as you're hearing this part of, of Ephesians 2, which is really the, the crux of this argument, it's from these realities as the church that Paul will launch into the rest of the letter. And the reason that we're called to pursue unity, the reason that we're called to love each other, the reason that we're called to pursue holiness is because of who we are as the church. That we are now citizens of God. And so reflect that. We are now the family of God, therefore reflect that. We're now the temple of God, therefore reflect that. And so we must live out our lives as the church. And remember why i bring all this up. I think our identity as the church, as believers, is something that most of this next generation misses. I can tell you most of our kids are taught very well. Most of them can recite the gospel within 30 seconds, no problem, stone cold. But very few of them truly understand who they are as the body of Christ and how that changes how we treat one another. And this is something that we need our kids to understand. The next generation needs to have this right view of the church and one another, especially in light of what's happening today. But where the rubber meets the road is this. Kids get their view of the church from their parents. They get their view of the church from what they hear their parents say, but even more directly from what they see their parents do and how they see their parents respond to what's happening around the country and seeing how their parents respond to conflicts in the church. And seeing how their parents respond to any given situation that's related to our identity as believers. Kids watch and they learn. And so therefore, I want to bring it back to you parents for just a moment. What are you teaching your kids? Are you helping them understand their role as a church? Do you recognize that your actions speak louder than your words? Are you helping them to process how to treat other people here in this building and all around And I hope that we as a body will continue to pray for one another, right? I hope you as parents and families are thinking about your relationship to other people as citizens, as fellow family members, and as part of this new temple. I hope that you older parents and families are praying and mentoring these new families to help them live this out as a church, as Calvary Bible Church. And I hope that you younger families are beginning to think through, before your kids get older, how you're going to shape their worldview as much as As much as you can. I hope that we understand how to live as the church, and we understand our identity as believers. And just as we're closing, I want to recognize that, you know, this is indeed a, a season of transition for Calvary in many ways. I've had so many conversations as we've recognized, you know, families who love our body, but, you know, they've been here for 5, 10, 25 years, and for different reasons, they're moving out of state, or they have a new job somewhere, and they're moving to a different location. I've had so many conversations where people are, you know, lamenting the fact that people are going. And that is a good thing, right? We should love our family very much. But the other thing, and I think this is why this is so timely— is to remind ourselves that in this season of transition, everyone here is the family of God. That as much as there might be people who you've cherished relationships for so long, who are moving away, you have so many new people who are coming into this church, who guess what, are also your family. And so I think in this season of transition, the Lord is shaping us to really see, are we going to understand what this family of God really is? Do you understand that we are getting new brothers and sisters all the time and (laughs) by no means replaces other people, but it helps us to understand to have a broader perspective. That we are the church. This is our identity. That when we understand the gospel, it has implications for our new identity. It shapes how we see ourselves. It shapes how we see others. I hope our students get this. I hope our parents are able to understand this and teach to their kids. And I hope that we as a church body will understand this and relate well to one another as fellow citizens, as family, and as the people of God. Lord, in light of these realities, we cry out to you. We recognize that life is indeed hard, that there are so many things happening around this world. There are so many divided opinions, even here in our body. And so I pray that you would help us to not think primarily as secular Americans, but you would help us to think as citizens of your kingdom. Help us to process the events of this life in a way that brings you glory, that has a kingdom perspective, so that we as a church may be unified. Help us, for we need help. I pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.